Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So, Krivia and Rajap Rajapi have come up on the last two episodes, particularly in relation to his chronometre contemporain, which we first mentioned back in episode 14, in our, our Basel World episode. And then at Basel World, he had unveiled the very first prototype of this watch, which you and, and I were both uh, very taken by the movement of. And uh, he has, over the past several months, gone through several iterations and is now up to prototype number six, which is very close to what the, the final version is going to be. And those deliveries are going to start taking place just a few short weeks from now. Uh, but the the photos that have come out have, have just taken the, the level of execution and finish that was present on that original piece. And that he was very clear was, was not the final product, but it taken it to uh, another level altogether. And it really is an impressive piece and nice to see some, some more pictures of that popping up. And there's a great article by uh, SJX uh, showing off some photos of uh, prototype number six compared to the original prototype that we had first talked about. So what do you, what do you think? As we mentioned before, the original is absolutely fabulous and the quality of work on the original is unbelievable the sixth version of it he's made some subtle changes to it although not not dramatic but i'm uh i'm a huge fan of what he's done with this i have to say this is maybe the nicest movement i've ever seen from a design point of view mm -hmm. uh, i don't know that i've ever seen a a better balanced movement just from a an aesthetic point of view than uh, than this so I'm a huge fan of this. It would be lovely to see one of these in person, but the photos, fortunately, on SJX is, uh, this article is just, they're unbelievable. So you almost don't need to see this thing in person because these photos are spectacular. Now, one noticeable difference between the two is that the prototype number six doesn't have any anti-reflective treatment on the, the display back. So there, there's a noticeable difference in the, the quality of the photos between the two in that respect. But even still, with the way that they've been able to angle the camera and capture a bunch of these photos, it, it really is an impressive piece. Two, four, level finishing, voting line and level finishing on, uh, as you say, a beautifully balanced and conceived movement. Absolutely. And this this is the sort of thing that I look at and realize that my ideas for my own designs for watch movements need to be reconsidered because this is, this is bringing movement design to a whole other level. You've got to up your game. Absolutely. I have a have a new uh, new target to reach. Now, one thing I was curious about on the the original and that remains a bit of a curiosity for me is is how the the stud for the the hairspring on the balance wheel is actually being fixed underneath the the balance cock there. I can't. There aren't any angles that that make it clear to me exactly what he's done there or how he's performed that. It really is. Just another level of, of impressiveness. And that center bridge for the center wheel is just next level finishing as well. Uh, it really is difficult to get a, a black polish like that on a rounded and tapered surface. It takes uh, years of, of honing skill to be able to pull that off to, to that degree of accuracy and perfection, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's impressive the level of work that he's done on that and, and just how... Uh... How fabulous it is. And the, the inner angles on all the, the chamfers, really well done too. He's polished the the spokes on every single wheel in the, the gear train. And uh, a nice little touch too that adds to the the symmetry of the movement is that he's been able to, to nestle the escape wheel down underneath the the balance, which is something that uh, Votilainen, uh, well, I can't really say that Votilainen did it, but on the his initial observatoire series that were based on the Pazu 260. It has a, a similar configuration where the balance wheel in order to be nice and, and as big as possible actually runs over top of the escape wheel. Another nice refinement I, I noticed on the the Acrivia piece is the way that that center bridge actually integrates under the, the main bridge that uh, is holding the barrel down in place. On the very first prototype, there was a more defined difference between the two uh, looking down from the top it looks like the, the center bridge just sort of melts right into that that main bridge for the barrel uh, but they are in fact two pieces and uh, on 
the very first prototype, the, the, the finish wasn't quite as flush between the two when you take a look at the edge, uh, but on, on prototype number six, it is very close to, to a seamless meeting of those bridges. The other thing that uh, I would say was almost mysterious to me in the original images that I, I saw of the, the first prototype was that the balance wheel just seemed impossibly close to the, the center wheel and the, the fourth wheel or, or second wheel, depending on your, your school uh, of thought. Uh, but essentially, the, this, the, the center wheel there would be going straight up through and driving the, the minute hand directly. And then you go straight down from that wheel to, to six o'clock. You've got a, another gear in the gear train that's going to be driving the seconds hand. And the balance wheel seems just to be colliding right into the, the pinions for each of those wheels. But uh, a couple of the shots here in, in this article from SJX actually show that uh, Regep cut away the the pinion so that the, the balance can run freely back and forth there. Uh, but again, just a really nice refined touch there and just really adds to the, the overall balance of the aesthetic. In the uh, vein of pieces that we've been looking at and, and sort of seeing high-res imagery of and, and sort of disassembling, I've been going back and looking at some of the videos that Peter Speak Marin has been producing in conjunction with the Watches TV. They've been doing a series of uh, videos called Don't Try This at Home, where Peter disassembles watches and does a running commentary of some of the movements as he's doing that, that deconstruction. The episode I was most impressed with recently is when he takes apart one of uh, McGonagall's minute repeaters. He doesn't do a full disassembly on it, but he disassembles uh, a lot of the, the really critical components that have to do with the minute repeater portion. And uh, it, that's quite an impressive watch, Seeing being able to see the internals and listening to him talk about exactly how it's designed and what's going on. And again, a very beautiful movement, the way that it's designed. A couple of very unique aesthetic design decisions. Some of them end up becoming practical design decisions as well. And uh, he actually had Stephen McGonagall there chatting a little bit about it and, and being able to sort of help with some of the disassembly. So if you, if you haven't seen that and you want to see what a, a, a truly high-end watch looks like as it's being disassembled, this is a really great chance to to see it and, and get a slightly different view of it. Something that's a, that you don't quite get when you're just looking at static photos of uh, of one of these movements. Yeah, it really is a, a different picture altogether when you're able to see it in action, particularly with something like a, a minute repeater. And if I all correctly, I believe the the base caliber that the McGonagalls are using was developed by Christophe Claret, who's a, another yeah. independent watchmaker who has, has done very well for himself over the years. And I, I believe uh, at least one of the brothers worked for Claret for a time. Yeah, I think that's that's that may be the case. Um, the and the big the probably the most important thing about this that I like is um, I I like hearing Peter's commentary as he's disassembling it because he has some interesting insight into how and why things were designed the way that they were. Uh, some of the other watches that he's done again, it's the same kind of thing where you get a a better sense of why design decisions were made uh, listening to his commentary and that's something that you're not going to get necessarily looking at a uh, an article written on sort of a standard uh, watch blog or or watch website uh, because the the people that are writing those are are typically journalists as opposed to watchmakers so it's nice hearing a, a skilled watchmaker sort of disassembling these watches and, and giving his commentary mm -hmm. more on the ground hands-on first-hand explanations of, of exactly what's going on there yeah and and i find that his commentary is approachable it's not something that i think even if you're not a watchmaker even if you're not familiar with a lot of the the ins and outs of it and the technical side of it i think most people would still find it approachable enough that they could get something out of it you don't need to be a, a skilled watchmaker already to be able to enjoy it and on the the subject of mysterious timepieces you sent me an, an article recently too that was was published on quill and pad about Cartier's mystery clocks. Yeah, after our conversation last week about magic and, and Ricky Jay in particular, uh, we, we sort of alluded to the uh, fact that 
some of the origins of magic and and certainly modern day magic came from uh, people like Robert Houdin, who was in fact a clock and watchmaker, and he initiated a few interesting uh, mechanical magic tricks, some automata that that were used as as magic tricks. And one of the other things that he made was a mystery clock, where he made a, a whole series of mystery clocks, where the mechanism being used to uh, operate the the hands of the clock is not obvious. Uh, you can't tell exactly what's going on. And I know that Cartier was one of the companies that sort of ran with that after Houdin and ended up uh, producing a whole series of these uh, these magic or these mystery clocks as well. And recently, Quill and Pad, actually, I think it was the day after we we released our episode, Quill and Pad put up a, a great article about these uh, some of these mystery clocks from Cartier. Yeah, Robert Houdin's legacy truly is an impressive one, both both in the the world of magic and in the world of horology. Uh, you can see his, his fingerprints on things uh, just trickling down over the centuries. And uh, Cartier certainly is one of the foremost clock and watchmakers to to have picked this concept up and run with it and, and surprising to me is that there there often are gimmicky dollar store level versions of things that, that come to market and uh, i have yet to see an, an inexpensive mystery clock uh, come to come to market that i've been able to find readily uh, at least so this is still something that's uh, reserved for uh, the well-to-do in most cases. There is a, a quartz watch that I've seen from Quinting, but it's still a quite an expensive piece that, that has a mystery dial in it. And just to describe for, for the listener what we're, we're talking about here when we say a mystery clock, essentially what you have is what looks like a, a pane of glass just sort of suspended there in the, the air or a the pane of glass kind of gives it away a, a little bit, but the ultimate effect is that you have an hour hand and a minute hand that are moving and keeping time, but do not appear to be fixed to anything else whatsoever. And it really is a, quite an impressive feat of, of of skill and engineering to be able to pull something like this off. And one of Houdin's most incredible pieces is actually one known as a, the triple mystery clock. And it is a, a glass dial that is suspended by these tiny uh, little supports, we'll call them arms of gold. And those arms of gold are suspended up on a, a glass rod, uh, which is then supported in a base that appears to be not affixed by anything more than, I guess you call them a series of, of maybe sphinxes and, and dragons characters characters around the the base of the clock and uh, there doesn't appear to be any possible way for this these hands to be be driven by anything uh, but sure enough they they are and uh, they are keeping time and uh, if i understand correctly I, I believe this the particular example of a triple mystery clock that you and i've been passing back and forth for a bit is actually a first sale uh, but it's mm-hmm. uh, at the sort of price where if you have to ask probably can't afford it yeah i would I, I wish i could afford it and of course as i mentioned earlier to you i would probably want to take it apart and see exactly what's going on here it's certainly an impressive piece there is not a lot of room for i, I mean i understand the principle behind it what he's doing and how he's made this but he has not left himself a lot of room for actually accomplishing that task so the fact he's been able to do that in such a tiny area and be able to drive the hands because the base of it is clearly where the clock mechanism is. That's where you wind it. That's where the the mainspring is located. The fact that he's able to drive those hands uh, through, as you say, this 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 clear rod and up through the base where it doesn't appear as though you should be able to is uh, incredibly impressive. I'd, I'd love to see a deconstruction of this. So, Peter, if you're listening and uh, you can get your hands on this, it would uh, it would be great to uh, great to see that on the naked watchmaker. 
And this, if I understand correctly, I think this is one of six of this particular design. He made he made a number of them. I know he made a number of mystery clocks throughout his career, uh, but I think this particular design with the clear pillar, I think he made six of them. So this is one of uh, one of those. And taking things a, a level up from there, miniaturizing these these mystery clocks into to wristwatch form is is quite a, a feat. Uh, but then to take that uh, a step further even and to make mystery tourbillons is uh, another level altogether. And uh, brands like Cartier and, and Georges Lecoutre and Tiffany's have all made examples of, of mystery tourbillons before. And the first of these that I'd ever seen was uh, a pocket watch by Tiffany that they, they've dubbed the Oracle that has a, a, a T-shaped Tourbillon that seems to be suspended in the middle of, of nothing, and it uh, is actually the the tourbillon carriage, and it is what is responsible for the watch keeping time. And then Cartier's take on that as well with the uh, Astro Mysterieux timepiece that that they debuted a few years ago, uh, then takes that that concept and and the whole idea of a, a mystery piece and, and fuses them together with a, a tourbillon that's actually functioning as a, a hand of the watch. And and that, of course, being a mystery piece, is also looks like it's suspended in the middle of nothing. Uh, so these are all really challenging pieces of horology to both conceive of and to execute well on. Hmm. Uh, and then at the, at the end of the day, for them to keep good time, too, uh, is likewise impressive. And then a similar vein in terms of how it functions, the... Uh, golden bridge that Vincent Calabresi created uses a similar technique. I think he's using clear sapphire to support his bridge, but he's created a mechanism where it's it seems to be floating in the middle of this watch case, and he's using a similar idea and technique to what Houdin and Cartier were doing for their mystery clocks. Uh, he's just using it in a slightly different way. So he, again, a same same idea, creating this sort of floating watch mechanism, and uh, it's quite impressive seeing what he's done with uh, with that design as well. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of how he's made his name over the years is with these watch mechanisms that appear to, to float between the the case of the watch, whether it's a, a Pegasus or someone's initials or what have you. He's uh, had all sorts of designs, and, and as you've alluded to, uh, I was also the creator of the Golden Bridge uh, for which Corum is well known. The Golden Bridge itself, uh, to me, doesn't quite fall in the same class because it, while it, it appears to be suspended in the case, there is a, a distinct point where the, the crown protrudes from the, the top or bottom of the case and, and meets the, the mechanism itself. But it is still quite a feat yeah, as well, producing that piece, because the, the big challenge there is actually getting the gear train to run well in a, a straight line like that, because uh, the gears don't tend to want to distribute energy consistently for a long period of time in a straight line like that. You generally get better performance architecting the flow of energy in more of an arc uh, because the, the gears themselves are, are turning in, a, in an arc-like fashion. And if you're interested in seeing more about his particular design and, and more about the Golden Bridge in particular, uh, Elizabeth Dewar she wrote a book specifically about this called Bridging Art and Mechanics, The Unabridged Story of Coram's Golden Bridge. Uh, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. It looks like a, an interesting book if this, if this particular design style happens to uh, interest you. Now, Houdin was known for far more than just his mystery clocks. Uh, you mentioned last episode the film The Illusionist, and, and one of the key parts of, of that story, in a sense, uh, is, is based on uh, an automata that, that he created, wherein a, a tree would appear to bear leaves and then bear fruit, and he would be able to pick an orange off the, the tree and actually hand it to someone uh, to eat. And, and that trick uh, features quite prominently in, in The Illusionist, and, and that was derived from uh, an, an automaton that was created by Houdin. The, yeah, Houdin created a few different automata that are designed specifically as magic tricks. And that happens to be, I, I think, probably the most interesting of them and the most uh, impressive of them. 
having having this orange tree flower and then produce oranges that you could eat and then of course the final part of the trick is that it uh the the orange at the top is is fake and it opens up to uh reveal these butterflies that that rise up and carry a handkerchief which usually has a ring that was taken from one of the audience members and often the oranges would have you know something embedded in them something like a a dollar bill that the audience member had signed and when you cut the orange open it the dollar bill is contained inside of that so it's it's quite an impressive trick and it's it's interesting to see and i can imagine in the 1850s when he designed and made this that it it must have seemed like you know like magic like it must have seemed completely uh, uh, unbelievable for the audience to be able to to see that and not have any clue how this was done because of course at the time clock mechanisms were still relatively foreign to a lot of people they the they didn't have a lot of understanding about how they worked and they probably wouldn't have seen the inside of a clock mechanism and and how how that uh that gear train worked and things like that so the the idea of this tree on stage functioning like this must have been uh, must have been quite amazing for people to see some of the other pieces that i've seen of his uh, probably the most interesting one is uh, his magician which uh, includes a clock so the base of it is a clock and i think it's at the hour i want to say instead of playing a tune or you know chiming bells or something like that there's a magician at the top of it and he's got two cups that he uses for showing the shell game where as he lifts the cup it either reveals or hides uh, various items that are under there uh, i think there's a uh, some dice that are under there and i think there's a a little shell of some kind that's uh, that's under the cups there's this whole little magic trick that it does this little routine that it does of showing and hiding the different items that are under the cups and that's quite impressive now, one of the videos that we'll include a link to in the show notes actually includes a little bit of video showing the mechanism itself inside and some of the cams that are being used to actuate the magician on top of this clock and uh, showing how it works. It's uh, it's quite impressive seeing what he's done with it and how he's uh, how he's managed to design this. Yeah, very meta to be using a, an automaton to, to do a magic trick when automata were being used to perform actual tricks by by magicians of the day mm-hmm. and there there were a number of different uh different things that automata were doing they, they were often trying to recreate real life and so you see examples of dolls smoking in realistic ways and obviously birds and things like that i think those were more of a, a philosophical attempt to try and sort of recreate living things uh, these were being done intentionally as ways of fooling people and and performing magic tricks for people, which I think is is taking it to a whole other level. That's uh, because some of them are are very very convincing. Uh, I know if you if you go through Ricky Jay's uh, fifty two assistants, one of the tricks that he does in that uses an automata to reassemble a torn card. And I'm not sure if it's a if it's an antique one or if it's one that he had made and is just made to look antique or not. Uh, unfortunately, I've never been able to find a lot of details about that particular machine. Uh, but it's quite an impressive trick watching him do it, and it will sit there and and reassemble this uh, you know this card for you. And uh, it's it's quite an impressive little trick that he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, a neat trick. Yeah, it's a, it's an impressive magic trick, even when you just do it by yourself. But having the machine do it for you is uh, <laughs> is uh, taking it to a whole other level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the way that the machine pulls it up is what I I find impressive about it. Yeah. Again, uh, another another thing I would love to be able to get my hands on and see exactly what it's doing and how it's doing it. Yeah, I mean, it, even Vaucanson, who we, we touched on his lathe. Uh, couple episodes back back in episode 29 his pooping duck uh, which was a, a, an automaton uh, in itself was in a sense a, a magic trick because uh, the 
the food was not actually being digested. There was a, a bit of sleight of hand at play there in that what was coming out the other end of the duck was something that was already in the duck and was planted there beforehand. Another of Houdin's inventions that uh, I, I appreciate uh, is a deck of cards he created known as a, a Protean deck. Uh, I've only ever had very brief hands-on time with one, uh, but you're you're able to uh, almost morph uh, a deck before the eyes of someone several times over. And I have a, a much simpler version of this deck, uh, known as a, a Svengali deck, wherein you can uh, have what appears to be a very normal deck, and you, you can rifle through the cards, and, and you know, every single card looks different. And then with a, a very simple motion right in front of the the eyes of, of your audience, uh, you're able to have them select a card, place it back in the deck, and poof, all of a sudden the entire deck becomes their card. And uh, Houdin had a variant of this that was a little more advanced than that. Um, but uh, the, these are these fall in the category of, of, of gimmicks, and uh, I know you're more of a purist when it, when it comes to your sleight of hand magic, but uh, I, I appreciate the way that, that these decks work, and um, it's, it's quite clever uh, in the way that they were conceived. And I don't know if uh, Houdin was also the the progenitor of, of this particular style of of deck to be able to perform these these feats, uh, but if he wasn't, he was certainly one of the the early adopters of this style of of deck of cards. In my case, my uh, I, it's not as if I have disdain for for gimmicks. In my case, it's just because I know that I'm not organized enough to keep a set of gimmicks around to be able to pull off a trick at any time i i'm certainly not like a ricky J where i'm going to be prepared in the shower to be able to pull off a, a magic routine for you know for people so that's the reason why i i've always avoided trying to learn anything with with uh, gimmicks because i know that i would never have the gimmick on me to be able to actually perform it mm. uh, but some of these some of these gimmick decks of cards and whatnot are quite impressive the way that they're designed some of them are are incredibly devious the way that the way that they've been designed to work. Mm-hmm. Part of the skill in being able to make use of a, a gimmick in any sort of magic work is is the the sleight of hand required to transition from a, a gimmick to a, a fully inspectable mm-hmm. prop or, or deck of cards that you can hand to someone. Yeah, absolutely. There there is definitely skill in being able to use these gimmicks. It, it's not. It's not a, a foregone conclusion that just because you have a gimmick deck, for instance, that you'll be able to pull off a trick. You still have a lot of work to do to be able to pull it off convincingly. Now, while Houdin certainly was not the earliest magician by any means, he had probably an oversized influence on magicians that came after him. Who are some of the people that you know of who were directly influenced by him? In terms of directly influenced, are there two in particular, who, who popped to mind. One is uh, Georges Méliès, who's a, a cinematographer and magician and horologist, upon whose life the, the film Hugo was based. And the other, of course, is Houdini, uh, who very literally just took Houdin's last name and uh, threw the, the extra I on the end there. And uh, uh, two of them, I would say, were, were very strongly influenced. And of course, countless other magicians through the ages have been inspired by Houdin and his work. Uh, but uh, I find Millier to be a, an interesting character. He created a, a lot of the, the early sort of quintessential silent films uh, that people know of, like A, a Trip to the Moon or An Impossible Voyage, that uh, were very, very whimsical and, and out there sort of films or experiences that uh, brought to, to the big screen what, what would have seemed to be absolutely impossible back in the day. And, and I, th- I think a large part of that was likely due to to his background as as a magician, and uh, he had a tumultuous life from from what I I know, but uh, he he certainly had his own impact on on things as well, and throughout uh, and he sort of kickstarted I would say uh, the Hollywood that we we now know because uh, prior to to his work there really wasn't uh, much in the way or of what you could see the seeds of, of say a blockbuster film in. And uh, I think he, he, in a sense, planted those seeds. Uh, in terms of modern Hollywood itself, a lot of people often ask me what I, I think about the, the movie Hugo. And 
um, <laughs> uh, from a, a horological per- perspective. Um, uh, I don't have very many good things to say about but they, it's, uh, from a, from a horological perspective. It's, it's not really founded in reality, um, right? From yeah. an actual clock and watchmaking uh, perspective. Uh, but in terms of the the filmography angle, uh, I, I appreciate that, and then the magic side of things too. An automaton happens to feature very prominently in, in that film, too. So I guess sort of everything we're we're talking about uh, was wrapped up in in Hugo. Um, it, it, yeah, it was an all right film, but uh, mm-hmm. horologically speaking, not the most accurate. Right, as you say, the the link between magic and movies is extremely important. I know a lot of people they sort of dismiss the uh, you know the the use of visual effects and things like that to to fool people into to do things that um that you couldn't do otherwise um with practical effects but really movies were just another continuation of magic and illusions and sleight of hand and it was just another way of of convincing people they were seeing something that that wasn't actually happening so really, the that all is intertwined, and and even though nowadays we're using computers to do that sleight of hand, it really does all come from that original influence of magic and and how to convince people things were happening, because you you see examples of apparitions and things like that being projected onto uh, onto smoke and things like that as as a way of convincing people of you know specters you know entering a room and whatnot. So a lot of the early use of movies and projection was was coming from this uh this world of magic and subterfuge that that magicians were trying to they they were trying to use the latest technology to uh to try and convince their their marks of what was going on yeah i don't personally know of any films that that i can think of that would uh consider to have had special effects or visual effects in them prior to to melier's work in a sense he's the the grandfather of uh visual effects in film as well. There's a whole ton that could be, be said about Houdini and his life and, and the mark that he left on on magic and, of course, the the multitude of magicians that uh, he inspired through his work and his life. And he, he must be the most famous magician at this point. He may not have necessarily had the, the greatest influence on people because, as we say, someone like Houdin probably had a, a more significant influence in terms of creating the foundation of a lot of this stuff. But I, I think it would be difficult to find a magician who is more famous than Houdini at this point. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't know which of the Enies came first, uh, Max Molini or Houdini, uh, but they, they were born just a year apart and both rose to much fame as magicians. And as you said, Houdini is likely the, the most famous of all magicians, but Max Molini was uh, quite the magician in his own right. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if Houdini uh, happened to have got wind of him and, and the name Houdini is a, a mashup of Houdin and Molini. Uh, but there's no question that the real inspiration for the Houdini name came from Robert Houdin. Uh, but Max Molini uh, was uh, a magician that uh, Di Vernon, who we mentioned in the last episode, and, and Ricky Jay both looked up to quite a bit. And uh, he traveled the world and was was brought to perform before all manner of kings and, and czars and presidents and what have you. And uh, he was very well known uh, for his sleight of hand. Something you mentioned last episode coupled with uh, just a couple of other things through the week it, it, a trick that that he was renowned for that that fooled Di Vernon that Ricky Jay was later able to perform for a journalist my my subconscious mind for whatever reason uh, managed to to fuse some thoughts together and, and I think I've cracked that trick that 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 had Di Vernon uh, thrown uh, so so badly, and then that had tickled Ricky Jay for a number of years until he was able to perform it for that journalist who uh, reminisces upon the trick in the the documentary Deceptive Practice. Uh, essentially, the, the the trick, the way that that Max Molini performed it. And another interesting sidebar with Molini, uh, he was actually born uh, Max Katz, and and that is the 
the same name that Ricky Jay's grandfather had. And Ricky Jay's grandfather is the reason that Ricky Jay got into magic. And there's some interesting overlap there. So you can kind of see why why Ricky Jay would have looked up to Molini the way that he did. But back to the trick. Uh, it was performed at a, a dinner table. Later into the, the evening, uh, he would take a woman's hat and spin a coin on the table and slam the hat down on top of it and ask the lady whether it was heads or tails. And whatever she said, he'd pick up the hat and sure enough, it would be what she called. And then he would spin the coin again and slam the hat down on top of it and again have her call heads or tails. Um, and he'd lift the hat and there would be a block of ice under the hat. Everyone would just, <laughs> where the hell did this block of ice just come from? Uh, so, to, you know, Die had no idea. Ricky Jay had no idea. Uh, but but between all these, these different elements, I, I think what is at play here is that it wasn't uh, ice in the way that we would normally think of ice, but rather it was... Uh, I'm not giving away secrets here because the real secret isn't being able to conjure this up, uh, but, but I think it's a piece of dry ice, which is essentially solid carbon dioxide. And we call it dry ice because it doesn't melt into a puddle the way that normal ice made from H2O does. Yeah, as dry ice melts, so to speak, it doesn't leave a puddle. It evaporates into gas, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so as long as you're adept at conjuring objects you could actually keep a piece of dry ice around and a sizable block of it too if you wanted to uh, without it melting or leaving any trace really uh, apart from it being quite cold to keep on on your person but uh, dry ice as a general rule will sublimate at a, a rate of about one percent of its volume over the course of an hour so if you have a big enough block of it and you're you're good for quite a period of time Although that would be incredibly uncomfortable to try and keep that hidden for any length of time, because that would be rather cold. Yes, indeed. And, and I think that's probably a part of the reason why uh, Ricky chose the particular location that he did, as described by the journalist. And I think, too, the reason that this particular trick wasn't done multiple times or recorded is I think you'd be able to pick up on the fact very quickly that it was a, a block of, of dry ice. Whereas if you are in the moment, experiencing it in the same way that this this journalist did, your mind would just be blown in in the same way that that her mind was blown. And blocks of ice like this are actually relatively easy to come by. I mean, fishermen use them, caterers use them, special effects companies use them, and it's not not hard to keep it frozen, uh, in just a, a regular freezer for for a period of time so it would have been fairly easy for for ricky j to, to get his hands on one once he once he had cracked it and the the size of block of ice that this journalist described it actually fits in well with uh, a number of blocks that are, are available on the market and, and part of what you had said that kind of tipped me was there are pictures of max Molini, and he looks very oddly proportioned and, and you had, had mentioned the lengths that, that some magicians will go to to be able to perform their magic. And I, I get a sense now between what you said and seeing pictures of, of him and just the, the proportion of his hands to his, his body size and the sort of anecdotal history of Max Molini. I think that the elaborate amount of time that was said that he put into getting dressed uh, according to some records shortly before his death, uh, and the fact that not even his son ever saw him practice. The only account of anyone ever seeing him actually practice was uh, a gentleman named Charles Miller, who happened to, to see him practicing through a, a, a door that was left slightly ajar in, in a hotel. All of that coupled with the seemingly impromptu nature of his tricks, I'm, I'm guessing that or I would not be surprised to learn that, that he likely wore some form of, of bodysuit that made him appear to be plumper than, than he actually was around the middle. And that uh, more than likely he, he would have been, appear to have been fat enough to, to hide things like the, this block of ice that he was able to conjure up, or in other anecdotes of tricks he performed, he was able to pull a, a full brick out of a, a gentleman's hat that uh, he more than likely was not as he appeared and probably wore a bodysuit of some sort to be able to, to hide and pull this sort of stuff off. Now, I don't know where Ricky J 
hid this block of ice on this particular <laughs> afternoon in a restaurant. But again, it's one of those tricks where you would have had to, to be there to really experience it and know it. But uh, yeah, I, I think more than likely he probably used some some dry ice. Certainly at the time of Max Molini doing this trick for people, access to dry ice would have been considerably less common than it is today. I mean, most mm-hmm. people today have seen dry ice or they've they've experienced it. So I think it would actually be a lot more difficult today to pull off that trick and convince people that a block of dry ice was actually regular ice. Mm-hmm. Whereas when Bellini was pulling this off, it would have been significantly easier to convince people that was just a regular block of ice. And again, I feel perfectly comfortable divulging this particular thought because to me, it doesn't reveal the, the trick itself. Uh, the big part of the trick is in, in the conjuring, but I, I think it is a key element of uh, being able to execute the trick is, is having a, a block of ice that's not going to turn to a puddle in your pocket. Uh, but the, the lengths that people like Molini would go to in terms of, as you said, you know, suggest maybe having a bodysuit uh, available, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, there are certainly, certainly magicians, stories of magicians who spent their entire lives you know, claiming to have a limp or claiming to have, you know, whatever, you know, being too larger than they actually were. And where, as you say, wearing bodysuits or always wearing certain clothes that were loaded with, you know, with various pockets and things like that. And uh, certainly clothes that wouldn't necessarily have been comfortable to wear or going to the point of having multiple suits that were absolutely identical made. I know there's one interview that I listened to with Penn Jillette from Penn and Teller and he was saying they have something like eight or nine different suits that they use through the series of you know through a night and they're all to the to the outside eye they look absolutely identical each one of them is designed and modified in a particular way to allow them to accomplish the tricks that they're making on stage so certainly most people wouldn't think that that somebody would go to the effort of making let's say nine identical suits per person for for a show and that's where magicians are able to to sort of get you because they they are willing to do that they are willing to go off stage and make very quick changes costume changes to be able to uh, to accomplish these tricks and, and if anyone is curious why i randomly know so much about Molini's life i haven't spent years researching it or anything like that uh, ricky j very kindly did that for me and following last episode after Having reflected on my introduction to Ricky Jay through the book Cards as Weapons, uh, when picked up another book that he had written that I, I hadn't read before that uh, is called of, of Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women. And in that book, he goes into quite a bit of detail about a number of, of magicians and various magic or, or circusy typed acts over the years that, that included the uh, the life of Max Molini and, and pulled together a lot of research that, that he had done there. So all, all these these tidbits and little anecdotes are pulled from from that book for, for anyone who's, who's curious to dig a, a little deeper into Molini's life. And a, another piece of reading material I've got kicking around that uh, I picked up years ago in an obscure little bookshop is a, a copy of Genie magazine, which is a, a journal for conjurers and this particular one is from from 1964 what drew me to this particular magazine was that it was an issue that was dedicated entirely to the the life of houdini and uh, inside it there's all sorts of of neat tricks and and insights and anecdotes and uh, the part of it that uh, i appreciated most working around a a whole bunch of of jewelers and, and people who work with with their hands uh, were a, a collection of Houdini's rings. In Deceptive Practice, the, the film we, we spoke about last episode, uh, Ricky Jay actually commends Houdini and, and how much uh, he, he appreciated the fact that he could just walk into a, a house empty-handed and then just start performing tricks. Uh, and the reality is Houdini never really went anywhere empty-handed. <laughs> no. He looked yeah, empty-handed, but uh, he had stuff hidden on all all sorts of places. So, so some of these rings are, are quite neat. And uh, they came in particularly handy for things like his, his escape tricks and whatnot. But uh, it is it's impressive what uh, his suppliers, if you will, his Q branch was able to to supply him in his rings. 
and uh, it is neat to be able to, to see those. So there's, there's volume 29, number two, the October 1964 edition of, of Genie Magazine, which is, is still in print and uh, is probably one of the, the largest bodies, if, if you add it all up over the years, of work collected and, and writing collected on, on the art of, of, of magic and, and sleight of hand and conjuring. Yeah, I know one of the other stories of preparation that Houdini would make uh, that I'd heard about years ago. He would do these tricks where he was completely naked and, you know, being bound up and or being put into a, a cell or whatever, and uh, he would be able to escape. And, and one of the, the stories I heard was him having fake scars that he had lockpicks hidden under. So he would actually spend hours preparing for these tricks where you would have these these scars and he had to make sure that the scars were identical all the time so anybody who saw him multiple times would actually see the same scars over and over again but they were in fact fake scars and he had his lockpicks and various ways of escaping keys and things like that hidden inside of these fake scars well that i did not know that's as you say it's impressive the, the lengths that some artists will go to 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 perform their their magic. Now you mentioned last episode that uh, a number of the pieces of magic and sleight of hand in the Illusionist and the Prestige were actually performed and and were not a result of, of any sort of mm-hmm. movie magic. Do you happen to know any particular ones that that the artists or the actors or actresses worked towards being able to perform? Well, I know in the case of the Illusionist, they actually do perform a version of Houdin's magic orange tree, and that is something that uh, that shows up in the in the movie. Now, I think that case there's uh, there is a little bit of magic, uh, sort of movie magic that's uh, that's used because they they modified the trick slightly, and instead of it just blooming and growing oranges, the um, the entire tree actually grows up out of the base of the um, of the the mechanism and i believe that that was done using some movie magic but uh, they did in fact perform uh houdin's um magic orange tree and uh and that was that's quite impressive so if you if you see that that the a large chunk of that that trick is being done with an actual uh, mechanical tree that they're able to uh they were able to make I do know that when you look at the magic routines that Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman are performing in that movie, they are actually performing all of those tricks. That's not something that, um, you know, they're not they're not faking that on screen. Uh, just like you see sometimes when you, you have a, an actor on screen who's faking playing a piano or something like that or faking playing the guitar, these guys are actually doing those magic tricks. And, and again, that was, that was all being guided by and... and they were being trained by Ricky Jay, you know, sort of off screen to be able to do that stuff. And in fact, in the movie, he he plays sort of the mentor for the two of them in uh, in the movie as well. Uh, so he he sort of does double duty of playing the on screen and the off screen uh, mentor for them. Hmm. Seem to have come full circle from the clockwork mechanisms created by Houdin in his automata to a modern Hollywood flick like. The Illusionist actually taking one of Robert Houdin's automatons and using it within the film. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. My printer's been driving me crazy. I think the uh, I think my resin may be bad because I've been having all these failed print jobs that shouldn't be failing. Hmm. I'm not happy about because I was trying to print some new lugs and uh, they weren't working out very well for me. You store it in a a light tight container. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the containers they come they come shipped in are light tight and they're the these resins are also really susceptible to uh, humidity. They hmm. uh, they're very uh, hydroscopic. Yeah, even the FDM printers are quite susceptible to humidity as well. 
Yeah. And obviously it's not very humid now, but I'm, I'm wondering if maybe the, uh, a little bit too much humidity got into it. So I've got a couple of other resins I'm going to try out and see if I can get them working. Mm. I wasn't very happy with that because I wanted to try and get them, get those, uh, lugs printed so that I could do some casting this week. So you're going to have to get brand new resin or you're going to take another shot at it? Well, I've got to, I've tried I've tried this one particular resin a bunch of times and it's failing on me, so I'm going to try. I've got a couple of other different resins here that I'm going to try. I've got one that's uh sort of it's a non-castable resin, but it's pretty much the easiest resin I've ever used for ca- for printing with. So we'll see if if they fail, the print jobs fail with that, then I've got to figure out exactly what's going on, but if I suspect that that's going to work fine, so and then I do also have another printable resin that I've used that I'm I'm not quite as happy with as uh, the one that I was trying to use. But if it works and this one other this other one isn't, then uh, I'm happy to switch to it mm. at least for this batch. And then I can buy some. The problem is that the castable resin is outrageously expensive. It's like two hundred dollars a liter, so it's not uh, not cheap. That's nothing compared to watch lubricants. Uh, you're right. It is nothing compared to watch lubricants, but you also go through a lot more of it than watch lubricants. <laughs> I don't know. I was being facetious. Yeah, one of one of my print jobs probably uses a year's supply of your uh, of your watch lubricants in terms of volume, or or more. Like, I'm hard pressed to go through three mils. Oh, geez, I, yeah, I go through, yeah, I go through a lot more than that in a print job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that uh, Rolex's entire production for a year is just ten liters of lubricant used. That's insane. Yeah, it's quite quite unreal. Uh, yeah, that's that's crazy. I can believe it though when you look at the amounts that you're using. Mm-hmm. I can understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope that you're able to get these lugs printed up and get some cast this week somehow or another. Yeah, the other option I'm I'm uh, doing a retrofit on my tag mill, putting some ball screws on it, and so if I can't get this printer working, then I'm gonna I'm gonna finish the retrofit of the ball screws, and then I'm gonna mill them out of wax instead of printing them. Okay. But the milling is isn't nearly as fast as the printing is, so. Yeah, if I can avoid that, that'd be great. 